Welcome to Crossroads if you're new. And um, I sympathize with you if you're new and right now you're thinking, what in the world's going on? There's people singing in the back. There's people singing in the front. There's families around and we're praying and talking and all kinds of things happening. Um, if you have any questions other than these that I've said, I, mean, I have questions. And so um, you'll, Crossroads will never come to a place where everything is so clear that you won't need to have any type of interaction with somebody else. One of the biggest values that we have here is family. And so feel free to ask. If you have a question, ask someone. And uh, hopefully one of us or somebody can help you arrive uh, or, or, or show you how we've arrived to certain conclusions and things. Um, if you have babies here, please feel free to leave them in. Uh, in the room, I really don't mind the sound of a baby crying for many different reasons. Um, that being said, at this point, just for clarity's sake, we'd like to share uh, some thoughts from the scripture and like to read from the Bible. So you would turn it to, to Luke. It's about three quarters of the way through the Bible. As some of you probably know, there are 66 uh, sections of the Bible. <laughs> and uh, we call them books because they're like, uh, sometimes we call them letters because they're written by people to people to read. And so uh, it... it each of them have a name, which I really like, because then as you get to know, it's kind of like getting to know a person. You get to know the name of this book. It has a personality and things that it wants to say to you and to all of us. And there was a man named Luke. He was a real person who lived in a real town. He had a real job and a real life. And he believed that Jesus was really God in the flesh and really came to save everyone. And he has a lot of different hats that he wore. He was a doctor. Uh, he, he traveled as a traveling evangelist with the Apostle Paul. And the one that we recognize him for this morning is like a historian. Uh, I like to see him as a... In, um, I just blanked. But I like to see him as a um, news reporter. Think about it. Like the old cool news reporters that would travel around and interview people and get the scoop. He traveled around and interviewed people who knew Jesus, who saw Jesus, who interacted with Jesus, and who believed that he was who he said he was. Then he went back and prayerfully compiled all of what he found and made this really beautiful work. He actually wrote over half of the New Testament. So he tells us the gospel, which is who Jesus was for us, or will be, or can be for you, and what he did. And so we call the letter, the gospel, according to Luke. And um, as we take the author very seriously at Crossroads, a human author, we also recognize that for thousands of years, our fathers of the church have recognized that God inspired Luke to do this. God breathed, he, he put himself into this letter and, and, and inspired the words, so it's God's words too. And they're profitable then for us to take and to receive, to be built up, to grow and to be rebuked and to train us in all kinds of different ways to live in a way that's honoring to God. So people like me and people like you that believe that hold this very precious, very close to my heart. And so if you agree with that, then please stand with me and turn to Luke chapter 13. And we'll read the precious and powerful and sharp and life-giving word of God. 
Luke chapter 13, starting at verse 10. On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues. A woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was doubled over and couldn't straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. And he put his hands on her, and she immediately straightened up and praised God. Indignant, because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. The synagogue ruler, the leader, the person who's in charge of this service, said to the people, There are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. The Lord answered him. Luke uses the word, the Lord here. The Lord answered him. Hypocrites. Doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for eight long years, be untied, be set free also on the Sabbath from what bound her? As he said this, all of his opponents were humiliated. But the people were delighted with all of the wonderful things that he was doing. These are the very words of God. Let's be strengthened. That psalm that I read earlier says, The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. And in in Hebrew literally reads, Those he straightens the bent. The Lord straightens the bent. So let me just pray for us. God, I pray that you would just seal up in our hearts this truth about you. And straighten us. If there's any oppression, any things that are causing us to be weighed down and bent, that you would set us free. You've been doing this for many years. So I just ask you to do something this morning that you, that you do. I thank you for your word. Where would we be without you? Amen. Verse 10. On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues. Synagogues. What's a synagogue? Uh, It's a word that we don't use very much in our Christian tradition, but it is a word that's also used to this day in a Jewish uh, tradition. Say, uh, even in this town, there are synagogues. It's a Jewish place of gathering. Why is Jesus at a synagogue? (laughs) Well, it's texts like these that I find very interesting because it takes us really close to the Jewish world of Jesus. And it's interesting to me that you will find people who will use this to prove totally opposite things. One person will read this and say, look, Jesus is in a synagogue on the Sabbath. We should... We should do Jewish things and be in synagogues on this. Jesus did that. Look. But then you'll hear somebody else say the exact opposite. Look, Jesus in a synagogue on the Sabbath. He's always getting in trouble. He doesn't care about the Sabbath. Which is it? <laughs> or if you're like me and you've got questions and you're reading through this all the time, you're like, why is Jesus? What is the Sabbath? 
Well, what even is that word, and why is Jesus always getting in trouble? Why can't he get in trouble on a different day? Or is there other things that are, are coming to play here? Why are these people so interested in the Sabbath? When did that happen? That's a very good question. And I would love to introduce you to kind of how the Sabbath became what it is. The Sabbath is a very good friend of mine. And so I... Um, I'd love to share with you some thoughts that I find very interesting about the Sabbath. There are two Hebrew words I'd like to share with you this morning. One of them, uh, and both of them, I think, are used by the synagogue ruler, which is very interesting. But uh, not relevant right now. One of the Hebrew words is Shabbat. They're both found in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 2. So, have you ever heard someone say the phrase, Shabbat Shalom? Probably not then, because if somebody was to say that phrase to you, then you would say it back to them. Shabbat shalom. Great. Some of you know Hebrew. That's awesome. Shabbat is the Hebrew word for rest. It's kind of like a crown that you would place on my head if you would say to me, have a Shabbat shalom. It's a Hebrew uh, way of saying have a great weekend or having a peaceful rest. Shalom meaning peace. Shabbat comes up in, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 2. Now, this is very interesting. In the first section of the Bible, in the very first section of the first section of the Bible, God shows us that he created everything in six days, or these six movements that God develops and creates the natural world and order of things. And it's so poetic and beautiful and interesting. But... The last thing that God chooses to do through this work of creation is to not create. The very final thing that he does is he takes a break. You know that he could have just left it at six. Could have just made and six days you shall work. But he chose to communicate to what one of the first things that you're going to learn about God as you read the Bible is that he's okay with a break. Genesis 2 verse 2 says, and after he had done all the work that he had created everything, God rested from all the work that he had done. And he sanctified this day and made it holy for he rested from all the work that he had done. I find that very, I find that very remarkable. I can be okay. I started to learn about God. I can be okay with rest. The plot thickens in Exodus chapter 16. As hundreds of years go by, see, the people of God go into slavery in Egypt. They become very familiar with this leader, this king of Egypt, who's named Pharaoh, who is okay with causing people to work seven days a week. Moses comes and asks for freedom. He says, you guys are so lazy. I'm not going to give you anything. I, I got your break right here. How about you take a break and go get all of the supplies for the bricks that you're going to make me and still make just as many bricks as you were before. They have become accustomed to this type of life. 
But God heard their outcry, heard their oppression, that they were in this bondage that they were, had become used to, and he rescued them and saved them and parted the Red Sea, as I'm sure some of you know, and, and, and they came across and were saved from uh, Pharaoh. But then, what is one of the first things that God does? He says to them, I know that you're not used to this, but I'm going to show you who I am. I'm going to provide. I'm going to show you that I'm providing everything. I'm going to bring down bread from heaven. They called it manna. Bring down bread from heaven for you for six days. And on the sixth day, I'm going to give you twice as much bread so that on the seventh, you don't even have to go get it. You can just relax and rest. And so after one of the greatest acts of salvation and grace in the history of the Hebrew nation, the Israelite nation, God says, this is what I want you to know first. I really value you resting and taking a break. But wait, there's more. The next thing that happens 50 days later, something we'll recognize in a few weeks from now, uh, Sinai. God comes down and gives his word, his, his instructions, his Torah on how to live and how to have a life uh, that's honoring to God. And guess what? I, I wish I could show you this. It, it, uh, there are these ten big rules and commandments that also play into all of these other... Um, if you read Deuteronomy, there's, there's almost sections. And they all correspond with these ten... We call them the Ten Commandments. There are two of the Ten Commandments that don't start with you should not do something. One of them is you should honor your father and mother. But right next to you should not kill someone, you should not commit adultery, you should not steal, you can't have other idols and other gods is you should rest. Number four on the list is the Sabbath. You should take a Shabbat. So it comes comes very interesting to me as this keeps coming up in these big big moments in the story. The next big moment in the story is, 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 is still an exodus. Um, just like God creates all of this space for us to live in, in these six movements, these six days, and then on the seventh, he says, I'm going to rest. He starts to lead the Israelites to making space for him to live in, and he tells it to them in these six kind of movements. And on the seventh, in chapter 31 of Exodus, he says, Don't forget, I want you to rest. And this day, now that I'm living with you, now that I'm going to be among you, uh, is going to be a day for us to be together. And it's very, very important. Exodus chapter 31 and verse 13, God says, You want to know how important it is? On a scale from 1 to 10, it's life or death. It's, it's 11. Anyone who, who desecrates this day or doesn't, doesn't take advantage of this day, I want you to consider this is life or death. Or, he says, if they work on the Sabbath, then you should uh, excommunicate them. I don't know if that ever happened. I can't, I can't think of a time in the Bible where somebody actually was put to death because they didn't follow the Sabbath or excommunicate. I'm sure it did happen. Uh, it just, to me, communicates God saying this is how valuable this is. Interesting. The word, the number seven starts to become a, a very interesting p- pattern. As the Sabbath came on the seventh, 
day. The seventh uh, command of creating the tabernacle. Seven is the number for completion. Seventy, uh, ten sevens would be the fullest moment of completion. So God starts to talk about taking a weekly day of rest, but then... In Leviticus, he starts unfolding. Not only is there a weekly day of rest, but I want you to have uh, every seven years a, a year of rest. And so I want you to collect and to get, when you go into the land, the promised land, I want you to harvest and reap and do everything. On the sixth year, I'm going to give you twice as many crops and twice as much abundance so that on the seventh year, you let the land rest. You don't prune, you don't reap, you don't harvest, you don't plant, you don't do anything. Just let it take a break. And this is serious to me, he says. If you do not do this, I will take you out of the land. I will remove you so that the land can have a break. Depending on how you work your dates or not, you start to see Joshua come into the land, and it says he conquested, they took a city, and then, what's it say? They had rest. But it didn't take very long before they stopped obeying the Sabbath, before I'm sure they they started putting up idols, they stopped, uh, they probably didn't have the Sabbath year, they started doing what was right in their own eyes, And then, 77 year cycles go by. 490 years, depending on how you look at it, all of a sudden, the nation gets removed from the promised land. We call it the exile. For how many years, then, does the land get to rest? No surprise, 70 years. It didn't take a long time for people to put this together when they got back. Uh, As you just heard Ezra mentioned in the dedication of the children. Uh, Ezra, Nehemiah, everybody comes back to the land. It didn't take a long time for them to realize this is something very, very significant. So uh, we need to obey. We need to overly obey. We need to really figure this out. It's life or death. I'm not going to be the person who makes our nation get expelled from this land. I'm not going to be this person who thinks that I take myself so seriously that I have to create for seven days a week and control this whole thing. I'm to the point where I'm no longer frustrated with these stories between Jesus and the Pharisees. I'm more frustrated with myself. I'm not frustrated with someone that takes the Sabbath seriously. I'm frustrated with a country that openly brags about breaking this commandment. It's so significant to God as you look at that story. I'm actually glad that the Pharisees asked Jesus and challenged him. I'm not glad that that some of them didn't believe in him. But a Messiah who breaks the Sabbath is a Messiah who sins. And a Messiah who sins is not a Messiah. And this is the tension that's in all of these Sabbath texts. This is the weight that's behind all of these conversations that people are asking Jesus. Is he doing this right? You sure about that? Now, so let's see what happens. Jesus heals this woman. And then look at verse 14. I'll circle back to that. Indignant because Jesus had healed on Shabbat. 
the synagogue ruler said to the people, there are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days, not on Shabbat. Now, I promised you two Hebrew words. The second one is found in the same verse, that the, the first verse in the Bible that Shabbat is found. Genesis 2, verse 2. And God rested, Shabbat, from all of his melechah. You could try it. Melechah. Oh, very brave of you. We translate it work. But this word has been debated for people who take this seriously for thousands of years. Really? Is it work? What does it mean? What is melechah? Is it, is it my job? Well, that's not really fair to say that God's job was creation. I mean, it's not his job. He did punch in and say, I'm going to create for this week. And then I'm done creating. I, is that, it's, not like the, it's not the same. Uh, it's bigger than that. It's something more significant than that. So what is it? It's, it's significant. Uh, there are six days in the week for Malachi, he says. Now, just like there's denominations in the Christian uh, church, there also became people who have uh, opinions and division uh, in Judaism of Jesus' day also. Some believe Melchah was this, some believe that it was this, and we start different groups. Uh, you probably know most of them. The Pharisees a group, the Sadducees a group, the Galileans have a group, the Zealots are a group, but then there's the Sakari Zealots, there's also, uh, there's this strict group of brothers out in the, in the wilderness called the Essenes. They all have their own agenda. They all have their own ideas about Sabbath. The Essenes had a very strict view of the Sabbath. They just researched this sometime. They would not, you could even think about funny things on the Sabbath. You could not giggle. You could not tell a joke or else you'd be kicked out of the group. You couldn't get drowsy at church on the Sabbath. A lot of us would be in trouble for that. Um, that's the more stricter side of things. But think about this. Even on the lesser strict side of things, there's still 39 categories of melechah that you cannot do on the Sabbath. I don't know which group the synagogue ruler is in, but he apparently thinks that healing someone, that liberation, healing someone on the Sabbath, is Malachi. What do you do when you have a strong personal conviction, but the Bible isn't necessarily clear on what exactly the right thing is to do? Sure, there are a lot of things that in the Torah says you should not do, you should not do, but it doesn't really give us a comprehensive list. And that's one of the things that I love most about God is he will not give us a comprehensive list of how to exactly follow him. He will not allow for us to become letter of the law people. He wants us to be heart of the law. He wants us to wrestle with this. He puts things in here that makes us think, wait a minute. It says the opposite over here. How do I do this? What do you do when you feel so strongly about something? and You know that you're right. But the Bible isn't 100% clear on that, and somebody else thinks that they're right. A long time ago, Ryan Walkus asked me a question. Dan, do you want to be right, or do you want to be loving? 
is when we were talking about, it was before I was married. I haven't forgot that. And um, this is something to really think about. Do you want to be right or do you want to be loving? It's very easy to fall into the trap of being right all the time, especially because I'm a younger brother. I want to be right. I want to be right, and I punish people when, when they're not right. I want them to know that I'm right. I think that that's really uh, part of it, too. I want you to know that I'm right, so I have to prove it. I was driving on the S-curve Thursday night on my motorcycle, have minding my own business, enjoying the weather, and all of a sudden, somebody on their telephone decides that they want to come into my lane where I'm driving for no reason. I don't even know why, just to change lanes. And I decided, you know what, if I wasn't such a good driver, I would be in trouble right now. And so I buzz around him, and they start making all these hand signals, like, ooh, you know, and punishing. And as I drive away, I think, why did I just do that? (laughs) Well, because it's a lot more attractive to know that he knows that I'm right (laughs) than for me to just love. Because a lot of times when you just love somebody, they don't know it. They may not know it for a really long time. But we're we're imperfect people. I, <laughs> I know that there's a rumor going around that I have some brilliant memory and uh, all of this, but that's not true. I cannot remember which toothbrush is mine. It is impossible for me to know which of these toothbrushes is mine. I do every single day. I look at this. I see my sisters. I know it's my sisters, and there's a blue one and a green one. I think it could be either. I know she gave me the choice. It could be the blue one. It could be the green one. And so, you know what? I just take it and I use it. <laughs> Chelsea has told me probably, I don't know how many times, a hundred times, which is mine, especially after she finds her toothbrush used. And it would be, it would be very right for her to tell, her, tell me how right she is. And how often she's right about this. And how right she... But more often than not, she chooses to be loving. And I might not even know how many times she chooses to be loving. You told your spouse a hundred times. You can do that with theology too. I know that I have the right. I know that I'm right about how to do church. How do we do this worship thing? I know that I'm right. It's so clear to me. How can you think that? That how high on your priority list is loving someone? (laughs) Loving someone? How can I love someone when they have a drum set? How can I love someone when they don't wear a suit? How can I mean no? I'm I just I need them to know that I'm right. I know that I'm right about how to handle money and how I'm supposed to live and have this certain thing. I know that I am. I know that I'm right about homosexuality. I know that I'm right about divorce. I know that I'm right. And other people have different opinions. And how high on your priority list is loving someone? It makes me... I'm not mad. It just makes me nauseous. To think of all the times when a Christian decides to not love someone because they're right. When we're supposed to, we're supposed to show people how much love God has and give him a chance. We wouldn't give him a chance. Rather be right 
uh, with how I follow God than be loving. That's a pretty common feeling for me. I'd rather think, I know that uh, God wants me to do uh, this, this, and this, and so I probably can get away with this, this, and this. I'm not going to ask him about it. (laughs) I'm not going to try and love God. I'm just going to, you know what we call it? Legalism. Uh, Legalism isn't an on and off switch, I don't think. I think it's more of a spectrum. If you're on a lower, lighter side of a legalism spectrum, you're probably constantly uh, justifying your actions by saying, oh, at least I'm not as bad as (laughs) that guy. (laughs) Uh, And so I can do this. Um, you're probably thinking things like, well, good grief, I'm not as bad as I used to be. I know that was wrong, but you should have seen me 10 years ago. And then you're constantly, or we, I, constantly judging our relationship with God based on our actions. Instead of actually loving God, we want to just make sure that we're right, or there's some way that I can say to him, look, I'm a little bit right right now, at least. Or there's another side of the spectrum where you get to the point that you're so legalistic, you can't even tell your kids that you love them anymore. You train yourself to be so harsh on yourself and so harsh on everybody else that you just see all kinds of imperfections, all kinds of problems, all kinds of ways that, that, they're, that, that nobody's right. Meanwhile, not accepting the love of God of your life and living your whole life not giving the love of God to people that are closest to you. I could speak with the tongues of angels and the tongue of men, but if I don't have love, I don't have anything. I'm just a, a gong, a clanging cymbal. I could speak with prophetic power and have faith to move mountains. If I don't have love, I don't have anything. I could come to the West Side cleanup. I could deliver up my body to be burned and give all of my things to the poor. But if I don't have love, I'm wasting my time. You can obey the Sabbath and not love God. You can read your Bible and not love God. You can pray and not love God. The ruler of the synagogue has become very numb. He's become to a point where he apparently does not care anymore about this woman. His actions are, he's not celebrating or excited that this woman was just healed. So to me, that's a caution. If I get to the point in life where I cannot, I'm so numb, or I've become so bitter, or I've become so legalistic that I cannot celebrate anything good that's happening around me, anything that I can see that's beautiful and good and, and got God all over it, I become the ruler of the synagogue. And Jesus says to him, I can't believe that you care more about your pets than this person. You untie the the ox, which you really mad right now that I untied this woman. Well, ask yourself this question. Am I getting to a place where I know that there are broken people and hurting people around me, but I'm justifying uh, not loving them. Or, or ask yourself the question, how often am I justifying not loving the people that are around me? That need it. Think about it. 
Let's move into uh, the story of this woman and Jesus in this really powerful and interesting moment. Verse 11. There's a woman there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was doubled over and could not straighten up at all. But when Jesus saw her, he called her and he said to her, Woman, you're set free from your infirmity. This is a very, very beautiful story. I'm just going to point out some very simple things, and then we can, um, we can go home. Now, one thing that I find really challenging right away from this story is, is the amount of years that, the, that this woman has been struggling. Um, twice in this text, she's been struggling for 18 years with this. There are times in the New Testament, like in chapter 14, the next chapter, verse 2, where there are things that are to do with just the chaotic nature of our physical world, and there are just uh, ailments and things that happen. But there are also many times where there's a discernment going on that this physical problem is to do with spiritual oppression. Remember the demoniac guy who had some really crazy strength and he did not want to wear clothes and all this stuff. He lives out in the, the cemetery. Demonic. Or uh, a, a kid throwing himself into the fire. Demonic. Or, or, or somebody losing their uh, hearing or ability to speak or sight. This happens. Trust Luke's diagnosis here because in Galatians he is referenced as a beloved physician. He would know what's going on, or he believes, actually, that this is a demonically oppressed woman. For 18 years. Talk about replaying a moment over and over in your mind. I wonder how that happened, you know? Was it like throwing from third base, all of a sudden it's like, I can't move? Or, I'm always cleaning up after you kids. Uh, you know, it's like. I can't even sit that way for 18 seconds. 18 years. What's challenging by that, too, is that she comes to worship. I don't know if she came to worship all 18 years. Maybe. What does that tell you about her? I think a lot of times we start to think, I worship God, I love God, I do this, and I have no problems. Things start to work their way out, and I'm blessed, I'm good. I don't have any problems. 18 years, though, she came to worship. Try to think of how long would I, would I last before it was just 18 years later and I am just drinking a lot or I am Netflix a lot or I am just, I've given up. I'm just done. 18 years later, she comes to worship. Maybe this was the one time that she came in those 18 years, but she still came after 18 years. Some sort of hope, some sort of belief, some sort of faith, some sort of honor to God. It's amazing. Just look at this story for as simple as it is. She comes in, and Jesus sees her. He calls her forward. She obeys, and then she's set free. Could it really be that simple? He sees her. Now, this is significant for someone that has something very obvious happening with them. I think I, uh, it's easy to think about being overly seen in a culture that's taking pictures of everything, right? I mean, how, how often do sometimes we feel like there's so many pictures of me on the internet or whatever, uh, Facebook, that nobody's looking at them. Nobody can see. 
how about a woman in a village who for 18 years is walking around like this? I told you not to put my coffee cup on the top shelf. I, I mean, 18 years of her life like this. Here she comes again. Don't look. Don't make eye contact. There she is. Uh, eventually, you start to become unseen. A dramatic thing, a traumatic thing happened in your life where you lost somebody. Not last week, but two years ago. You should feel sometimes. Like, I'm not, I'm not getting seen anymore. Um... Anybody remember who, lo- who I lost? Does anybody remember this? I'm not seen anymore. I'm reading about a God, about a man named Jesus. I still see you. I can see you. She comes in the back of the room. I can see you. I'm not looking away. I'm not avoiding getting embarrassed by looking at you. I see you. Come here. And this is a scary moment. Because why did he just ask her to come forward? <laughs> is this a bad rabbi or a good rabbi? Is this someone who is going to make an uh, example of her? Look, you should have been following the rules. Better. You should have been doing this. Look at this woman. You're going to end up just like her. I don't know what's going to happen. This is scary. And sometimes when Jesus calls us closer to him, it is scary. I don't know how this is going to work out. I don't know exactly what's going to happen here. This might be painful. This might be uh, tricky. But she trusts him. And she obeys him. She moves forwards. And everything that was oppressing her, uh, she was set free. Lucy does not say, you are healed. Jesus says to her, you are set free. I emphasize on that freedom because she was oppressed. She was in bondage. And what a better day. Is there a better day than the day that recognizes the freedom to rest and the freedom from Egypt and the freedom to live and, and love God? It's because for her to be rescued from this slavery on the Sabbath, Jesus says, You're set free. I can set you free. So what's it going to be for us? You see, there's two, there's several parallels between this woman and the synagogue ruler that I find interesting. Both of them are hunched over. One of them is hunched over and approaches the Lord and then is straightened up to praise him. One of them is straightened up and prideful and hard-hearted and then leaves away Embarrassed and ashamed. Both of these characters are in bondage. One of them approaches Jesus being in bondage and oppressed by Satan and gets delivered. But one of them, through pride and hard-heartedness, is in bondage to legalism, to rules, to my being right. And leaves in bondage. Which one will you be? We all have bondage. We all have things that are oppressing us. Sometimes because of our own decisions. Sometimes because we have an enemy who roars and prowls around like a lion that wants to devour whoever. 
You've got to press it. And I see Jesus calling people to him week in and week out, day in and day out. Come to me. Will you come to him in humility? Will you respond to that call and say, I'm going to come forward and bring you this? Because we have a Savior who took on his shoulders the weight of all of the things that would cause us to sink and bend over and be crippled. And he walked to Calvary with it on his back and he was crucified. And and Colossians chapter 2 verse 14 says, when he was nailed to the cross, so was my debt, so was my sin, so was everything that would cause me to be crippled over. And he publicly put to shame all of the principalities and all of the oppressors that day. He gave victory. He provided victory for all of us and freedom. Jesus, he didn't break the Sabbath. Jesus brings the Sabbath. Some thoughts I'd have you think about this week. We have the band come back up to celebrate. Um, Number one, when's the last time that you rested? (sighs) Summer's coming right around. It's here. Summer's here. And so when's the last time you took a break? I think it would be easy for us to all start hearing things like, you can't take a break. We're a Christian. You have to do all these things. You have to be on every moment. You cannot rest. Well, if you start to ask yourself, when's the last time you rested? I want to ask you also, are you, uh, are you still trusting God? Do you trust Him anymore? Because one of the most beautiful things about Sabbath and about rest is, is He says, I created this. I provide this. I am doing this. And I know that you're creating and you're providing and you're doing. But I want you to just stop and say to me, I know. <laughs> I want you to say to me for a day or for a time or for a season, I'm going to just exist solely because you say I exist. And you allow me to. Have you rested lately? Just like marriage is a shadow of things to come, the Shabbat is also a shadow of things to come. And you will be wise to participate in some way, in some rest, that you can know. Uh, Abraham Joshua Heschel says that the Sabbath is eternity in disguise. Number two. Are you done with loving people? Has your faith or your religion or your convictions become a justification for you to no longer love? Are you justifying all kinds of sin in your life before God? That's not freedom. That's not freedom. That is bondage. We are, we have a mission to come to this world and say, God loves you. We preach Christ crucified. We preach Christ bearing all of the wrath of God on himself. And I have no more wrath to show you. If you would just receive that, I have no wrath to show you. I will not punish you for being different than me. I want to show you the love of God, the unconditional love of God. That's a good mission. For every second and every moment of someone that's different than you to say, for God so loved you that he gave his only son for you. If you would just believe in him, you can have eternal life and we'll figure it out. You've got to love people. And maybe it starts by you receiving 
the love of God for yourself. Not just on Sabbath, but on Monday. Otherwise, you'll start to get numb. On Tuesday, you'll start to get hard-hearted. By Friday, you won't even know what you're doing. Now, Jesus on the cross led us to a beautiful Sabbath. As he died on Friday. So, the last thing I want to ask you is, is who is Jesus? Who is God to you? Does this story teach you anything about God? Does it contrast anything that you've been hearing about God? Because there's some oppression that comes from hearing the wrong voice. The father of lies is all around us trying to get us to hear a different voice. So is the, the father, is your father in heaven? Does he sound like the synagogue ruler? When you come before him and bury your soul in your bedroom when you're on your knees or, or when you're at church, do you say, uh, do you hear the voice? How dare you? I can't believe that you thought that that would please me. I give you one thing to do and you can't do it. I can't believe you. My least favorite. You're my problem child. Do you hear that when you think of your father in heaven? How dare you approach me with your filthy rags? How dare you think that you could be free? That is not the voice of God. That's oppression. And that will cause you, if you believe that, it will cause you to do this. It will cause you for years to just walk around with a burden on your back of oppression. You can have freedom. Listen to the voice of Jesus. He says, I see you. I see your pain. I see your trouble. I know you. I know exactly what, is, what you're going through and how long you've been going through that. I see you. Come here. I got freedom for you. Come to me. I know how hard this is. I know how painful this is for you. Come here. And be set free. Come to me. Come to me all who are weary. All who are sick of it. All who are heavy laden. All who have that heavy yoke upon them. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Come to me. And I will give you rest. Shabbat. Shalom. Shalom.